You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Take one of the Pew Bibles and uh, uh, consider it a gift from Redeemer Bible Church. Uh, we want everyone to have a copy of the Word of God. And if you're using a Pew Bible, uh, this passage can be found on page 924. Let's read this together. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. God has, uh, in His Son, graciously given us forgiveness in the present and hope for an eternal future with Him. That's why I had us read Psalm 42, hope in God. But you know, we face obstacles in this life as we await the fulfillment of of God's promises. Now, we can and should develop a confidence in God's promises, not just in a general way that God is fulfilling his promises, but have confidence that God will be true to his word in our own lives. And the book of Colossians is about that confidence that we can have in the superiority of Christ and that confidence that we have that he will surely return That confidence of hope is the source of our courage as we face opposition and remain faithful to God and to each other when the enemy attacks. And believe me, there's a big attack on the Colossian church in chapter 2. Now, this morning's message has three main points. The first is the background of Colossians. The second is hope, faith, and love defined. And the third point will be hope, faith, and love embodied. So let's start with the background of Colossians. Now, we're beginning a a study of the entire book of Colossians in its four chapters over the next several weeks uh, to be followed by uh, a brief stint in that that New Testament postcard, Philemon. So it's a good idea to orient ourselves to this correspondence. Uh, Both the letter of Colossians and Philemon went to this church at Colossae. 
So uh, verses 1 and 2, remember we just read this. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, uh, Paul is writing from Rome to a church uh, in the small town of Colossae. And if we could have that first map slide, it would probably help there. There it is. And it's situated in the uh, Lycus River Valley uh, in today what's known as Turkey. Uh, you may recognize Laodicea there on the left-hand side. Colossae's Lycus Valley neighbors form, as you can see, roughly a triangle there with Hierapolis at the top, Laodicea over there on the western side, and then Colossae over on the eastern side. So uh, it's a triangle of about 12 to 20 miles along those, uh, uh, along those lines there. Uh, and... Uh, <clears throat> you can see it's, they're, they're very close neighbors, in other words. But a shift in the trade routes in the centuries before this letter arrived at Colossae had uh, uh, made sure that Colossae's prosperity had d uh, dwindled in comparison to its neighbors, Laodicea and Hierapolis. Though Colossae, at the time of Paul's letter, was small even by ancient standards, God doesn't judge the importance of a town by its size or wealth. He seeks individuals who will serve him with all their hearts. And we know about one representative from the congregation in Colossae named Epaphras, who became a faithful servant of Jesus Christ and was given a role in the spread of the gospel to his hometown. Now, if you'd go to the next slide here, the, the, the closest place that we know of for sure that the Apostle Paul traveled and stayed was actually Ephesus. And you can see it there on the west coast of Turkey. Uh, you see where the, the red arrow is pointing there next to Ephesus. And Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor, is what uh, the Romans called it, about 100 miles west from Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. You can see them over to the right side of this map. So we can surmise that perhaps Epaphras made the trip from Colossae to Ephesus where he probably met Paul uh, because Paul was, had, was staying in Ephesus for quite some time. And it's likely that Paul entrusted him with carrying the gospel back to the Lycus Valley and that Epaphras had a role in planting churches in Colossae, in Hierapolis, and Laodicea. Now, in the following decade or so, a network of relationships between believers in Colossae and its neighboring cities had begun forming, but the church faced challenges to the purity of their teaching about Jesus Christ. Man-centered legalists were twisting Christian teaching into a parody of the truth. Now, realizing the danger the church was in, Epaphras made an even longer trip. In the next slide here, you'll get sort of an idea of uh, where this is. Now, it's a little harder to see this here, but over on the left-hand side in the boot of Italy, about uh, midway up the shin there is Rome. Uh, that red line is Paul's journey uh, to Rome. But Ephesus is over here, uh, sort of on the right side there, 
and you can see how far it is, actually. The red line doesn't show the route that Epaphras might have made, but uh, depending on routes and, and weather and availability of ships, uh, you, could, you could spend up to three, maybe even four weeks getting to Rome if it was a bad journey. So Epaphras made this longer trip to Rome at even greater personal risk where Paul was by this time imprisoned. He had to let Paul know of the struggle for the faith in the Lycus Valley churches. This letter written to the Colossians was Paul's response to what he had heard from Epaphras. Paul answered by sending this letter to Colossae and a different letter to Laodicea, which is mentioned at the end of Colossians. And when we get to the last chapter of Colossians, I'll tell you why I think uh, that letter very well could be the letter that we know as Ephesians. But I'll save that till later. Okay, so you have to come back for many weeks so you can find out. Uh, now, uh, uh, this, is, uh, this book of Colossians, along with uh, Philemon, Ephesians, and Philippians, belongs to a group of Paul's letters called the prison epistles because Paul wrote these while he was imprisoned in Rome. Now, these books are named for the cities to which they are sent, Colossae, Ephesus, and Philippi. Now, Philippi is in Macedonia in Greece. The Colossae and Ephesus are in the Asia Minor area. And the very short letter of Philemon is named for the man who received it, though he too lived in Colossae. As we look to the passage today, we can see the qualities of Christian virtue that motivate the Colossians and for which Paul commends them. Now, these virtues may sound familiar. Hope, faith, and love. These are qualities God's Spirit produces in believers by His grace. First, we're going to define these virtues, hope, faith, and love. And second, we'll explore how these virtues are embodied in the lives of Epaphras and the Colossian believers. Their love for each other and Paul's love for them is what helped them draw near God in the middle of the crisis which they faced as a church. Now, we're asking, what kept them trusting God and remaining faithful to each other? What can God do in us that will keep us focused on Him? and focused on his glory, even when we are suffering? Well, the answers we find here in Colossians can help our brothers and sisters as they endure the trials of life. It is here in this network of Christian virtues that we find the ties that bind us as believers together. This brings me to the second point in our message this morning. It's hope, faith, and love defined. Now, wait a minute. Isn't it faith, hope, and love? Uh, well, read the passage again. You'll, you'll see this. We always thank God, verse 3, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul deeply appreciates faithfulness and love in believers as it reflects God's character. And he points out how hope, faith, and love operate together to produce thoughts and actions that glorify God. 
these are the qualities God produces in believers. They motivate us to, to demand doctrinal purity and teaching. And this fidelity to the truth is what protects the church from being taken in by the kind of doctrinal corruption Paul describes in Colossians chapter 2. Now, Paul thinks that these virtues are vital to us. So we should be paying attention in our personal study of the Word of God when we encounter them. We don't have time to hit all of the passages, but finding faith, hope, or love in the scriptures and thinking about the passage, passages would be a good course of study. So in addition to your assignment to read through Psalm 42 uh, that Chad gave you, uh, just, I'd like for you to find all those passages where faith, hope, and love uh, appear together or near one another. I'll suggest a few of these too. The, there are actually three other places in Paul's letters where the three terms faith, hope, and love appear together. And the most famous one, and this is why you said, wait a minute, isn't it? The most famous one is 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and where Paul says, So faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, in 1 Thessalonians also has two such passages. 1 Thessalonians 1, 3 says, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And later in that same book, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, he says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And in addition to these verses, Paul talks about these terms, faith, hope, and love, in several places. Romans 5, Romans 12, Galatians 5, and Ephesians 4. So Romans 5, Romans 12, Galatians 5, and Ephesians 4. Those are all chapters uh, in different letters in which Paul talks about these and develops the way Paul connects these faith, hope, and love, these virtues. Now we need to notice them because this faith, hope, love combination doesn't appear anywhere else in the writings of the other New Testament authors, only Paul. He has seen how faith, hope, and love are deeply meaningful because of what they produce in the many Christians he knows. So Colossians 1, 3 to 5 again says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Now, I want to develop these virtues here. And so for each term, we're going to talk about briefly about the world's common definition, how Paul uses the word in a representative passage so we can work toward a biblical definition. And then I want to consider how Paul uses the word in our passage in Colossians. So let's start with hope. Now, I start with hope because in our passage, hope is this anchor virtue that uh, is what produces the faith and love. Now, notice in verse 5 that he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You see that? Uh, we have uh, <clears throat> faith in Christ Jesus in verse 4 and the love you have for all the saints again in verse 4. But then in verse 5, he says, because of the hope. 
Now, if you stopped someone on the street and asked, what is hope? You'd probably get something along the, along the lines of a wish, like, I hope it rains today, or I hope we get a cold front in August. Uh, <clears throat> That wouldn't, be that, uh, that wouldn't be that bad a hope, would it? <laughs> I would love that to happen. But you know, uh, politicians go around saying, providing, uh, they say, we're providing hope for the people, or, or even better, we're, we're providing hope for the children. They say. And then cynics, of course, say there's no hope in anything. Uh, but biblical hope is completely different. Hope can be used in the Bible, in the, in the New Testament, well, in in the Old Testament as well, but hope can be used as a verb or as a noun. It's either the act of hoping or it's the noun, the, the hope itself. So sometimes hope is the action of hoping, but at other times hope is the object of hope, what you're hoping for. But hope in the Bible is never just wishing that your dreams would come true or hoping the wrong thing. Hope, as the Bible defines it, is a confident, eternal perspective. A confident, eternal perspective. Hope looks to the unseen in God's plan for how we should live, think, and act. Hope does not look to what can be seen or to the temporal perspective. Hope is a forward-looking trust in God's character. We are confident that God will do everything that he has promised. And so, because of that, hope produces that confidence that we need to wait for God, to trust him to accomplish his plan at the time of his own choosing. We'll have more to say about that uh, when we get to visible and invisible in uh, uh, Colossians 1, 15 to 18. Now, there's an example in Romans 8 that uses the word hope both as a noun and as a verb. So, this is Romans 8, 24 to 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we will wait for it with patience. You see, we are saved by God, but we're not fully rescued yet. Our salvation will be complete only when the resurrection comes. Right now, we've been saved from the penalty of sin. And in our experience of walking with God, we are being saved from the power of sin. And now we still await the future fulfillment of God's promises when we will finally be saved from the presence of sin of sin. Resurrection is the basis for this expectation. So this resurrection is the hope. We actively expect the resurrection. And so Paul talks about this in Romans 8. The resurrection is our hope. We confidently await our complete salvation when we will be raised from the dead. That's how Paul developed it in Romans 8. Very similar here, except the hope is slightly more focused on Jesus Christ. Listen to what it says here. We've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. In our passage, hope is the object 
It's what is hoped for. Now, first, notice that in verse 5, Paul says, because of the hope. In our passage, he doesn't put the terms in the order of faith, hope, and love the way we expect from 1 Corinthians 13. He mentions faith and love first and then explains what makes faith and love come alive. That's why he says, because of the hope. So Paul's logic in our passage is that hope is the basis of faith and love. Uh, The Net Bible that you can get online for free, netbible.com. Many of my colleagues at Dallas Seminary are involved in in producing that translation, so one of my favorites. Colossians 1.5 in the Net Bible says, Your faith and love have arisen from the hope laid up for you in heaven. Notice, secondly, that this hope is laid up or reserved, if you've got the New American Standard Bible, reserved for you in heaven. Paul pictures hope like a treasure in heaven. God is guarding this future destiny for the believer in Jesus Christ. This hope is waiting for us as we are waiting for this hope. But this hope is actually Jesus Christ himself. Later in this chapter, Paul's descri- Paul described Jesus as the hope of glory. Uh, Colossians 1.27, you can uh, look down or scroll a little bit on your phone. To them, that is believers, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery refers to God's revelation of himself in the gospel, the core of which is Christ in you, plural, Christ in y'all, as we would say in Texas English, the hope of glory, the presence of Christ in our midst indwelling us is the assurance that he will return and God will then set all things right in him and God's character will be fully seen. That's glory. When we look forward to his return foremost, when his presence will be fully with us, yes, we wait for what he will do when he returns, of course, but his person and his presence are what we want the most. So Christ himself is our hope. Not what he can do for us, but Christ himself. Hope in God, says the psalmist. Now that brings us to faith. We've, we've just done hope. Here's faith. Let's look at the faith and love that come from this hope. We always thank God, verse 3 says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love for you that you have for all the saints. The first thing Paul has heard about is your faith in Christ Jesus. But let's not define faith the way the world does. Merriam-Webster's online dictionary gives us one definition of faith the following words. Firm belief in something for which there is no proof. To be fair, uh, Webster lists other better definitions too, but surely many people define faith that way. Firm belief in something for which there is no proof. Sometimes people say, have faith in a way that practically means trust that your wishes will come true. You know, have you ever seen those bumper stickers that just say, believe? And you go, believe what? You know, Give me some content. Then, I, then maybe I'll decide whether I'm going to believe you or not. 
Uh, it's not trust that your wishes may, uh, may come true. Faith isn't, faith, uh, faith isn't wishful thinking. It's active trusting in God, in Jesus, and in the promises of God. Faith is a relational word that focuses on our relationship with Christ. When we think about the biblical definition of faith, our first impression may be to think about faith as getting saved. And there are many passages that, there's, uh, many passages that talk about faith as the moment someone first believes in Christ. The author of the book of Hebrews, for instance, thinks of that, that kind of faith as one of the basic doctrines of the Christian life. Hebrews 6.1 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, uh, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. So it's a basic doctrine of Christianity. But there are many other passages which speak of faith as one's walk, an ongoing lifestyle. For instance, 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. So when Paul says in, uh, in Colossians 1, verse 5, your faith in Christ Jesus, he means at least the initial step of faith. But I think he goes deeper than that. He is talking about continuing to trust in Jesus. Faith for Paul doesn't simply mean conversion, but the transformation of the heart uh, in accordance with the truth. This brings out the dual ideas that number one, faith is the moment we first trust in him, and number two, faith is an ongoing trust in Christ. Now, some people will call that perseverance. You may have heard the, the, uh, the theological term for that, and Paul will say more about that later in the book. Now, we've, we've seen hope that gives rise to faith, and now we move to love. Uh, faith focuses on relationship with Christ. Love, on the other hand, focuses on our relationships with other believers, even though there's love for God. I'm not, I'm not excluding that. I'm just saying here in this passage, the love that you have for all the saints. So the world's definition of love. Well, there are nearly as many false definitions of love as there are people. Many people uh, seem to define love as desire of any kind, focused on the benefit of the lover, not the object of the love. It is really about getting or exploiting many times. Now, one problem is the definition of love, and the other is the object of love. Just as they hope in the wrong thing, people often love, meaning assign value to, the wrong things. They assign value to things that God has told us not to value, and they have thrown away as worthless that which God holds most dear. And the irony is that people say love is the only thing that matters and justify all manner of wrongdoing under the guise that they love someone or something. Well, Jesus responds to the world's view of love like this. It's John 3:19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. But uh, let's talk about the biblical definition of love. And that's uh, to be found, I think, uh, other than in John 3.16, 1 John 3.16 and 17, 
uh, John writes this. It's one of his letters. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay, our, lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John is asking for those who claim to love each other to give everything for the benefit of others. Sacrifice is the test. Sacrifice is the test of love's reality because it demonstrates what we value. God values his own glory. So he sacrificed his own son in order that his glory would be multiplied in making us right with him. And for us to give everything, we need that same eternal perspective of hope to focus our attention away from ourselves to God's glory and to the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this love is supernatural, produced by God's Spirit. At the end of our passage, Colossians 1.8, we read that Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So when we look again at verse 4, we read, We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Paul isn't specific at this point in the letter as to what shape the love of the Colossians for each other took, but they were evidently sacrificing for each other. Certainly Epaphras was laying down his life when he went to Rome. He was risking his personal health and safety. And Colossians chapter 3 develops what love looks like. Just in summary, I could just say three things. Forgiveness, mutual edification, and kindness that we find in chapter 3. Now, Jesus says love is one of the hallmarks of faithful believers. As he said to the apostles in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it comes as no surprise that Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, now, uh, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, why is love the greatest? Partly because, as Paul's arguing in 1 Corinthians 13, that without love, the gifts and ministries of the church would be absolutely meaningless. But love is the greatest because it's an imitation of Jesus, as Paul indicates in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Now, Paul doesn't single out love as the highest for the Colossians in the way he did for the, the Corinthians. Instead, Paul shows how hope, faith, and love interconnect to produce fruit. Now, that's, a, that's another term that shows up here. God uses hope to produce faithfulness and love in our experience. As Paul puts it in verse 6, look at what it says. He's talking about the gospel, which has come to you, verse 6 says, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. See, bearing fruit and increasing is the progression of the gospel in its transformation of the hearts and minds of believers and the production of love. They have come to know grace and now it's overflowing in their relationship with God and their relationship with others. God has reached down to them through the gospel and the message of hope they find there gives them the confidence to act on that hope. In James's words, their hope has made them doers of the word. 
They're no longer afraid of losing out in this temporal life. They're ready to make sacrifices for other believers as needed. As Jesus says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples in John 15, 8. So at the end of verse 6, Paul says, you understood the grace of God in truth. God's grace to us leads to our love and grace to others. In Ephesians, Paul says this, Ephesians 4.25, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Actually, um, this is the way most English translations handle this word, uh, forgiving. But unfortunately, it's too limited. I, I can see it from the context, yes, but it's actually a, a, the verbal form of the word grace. So let me, read it. let me read it again. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, gracing one another as God in Christ graced you. Forgiveness is one expression of grace, that's true, but there's more to grace than just forgiveness. Grace is an expression of love that touches every area of our conduct towards one another. In the next verse after Ephesians 4.32 comes Ephesians 5.1, which commands believers to walk in love. So let's look again at the sweep of verses 4 to 6 just to see the main body of Paul's statements. Verse 4, we, th you know, we thank God for you, verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this, that is the hope, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, uh, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel reveals the grace of God, which connects faith, hope, and love. All of these virtues are pointing to Christ. The hope we've seen is Christ himself. It's him that we await. God's grace reveals this truth in the gospel message and promises us, us that Christ will come from heaven. Likewise, grace opens the eyes of a person to believe and grace keeps us faithful to Christ in our day-to-day -day experience. Love is our response to the grace of God that he's shown us in Christ. And while it's Christ-focused, love is also directed outward to other believers. It's the grace of Jesus Christ in action in our lives and directed into the lives of other people. So this grace is lived out in how we treat each other, how we help each other through difficulties, and how we sacrifice for each other when there's a need. So we've talked about, we talked about today the background of Colossians, and we've talked about defining faith, hope, and love. Now let's move to hope, faith, and love embodied. Now let's consider then how our hope in heaven changes us here on earth. We're not so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good, as people erroneously say. If you're very heavenly minded, you will be earthly good. That's a misnomer. But we find in Epaphras and in the Colossians people for whom confidence in, in Jesus, the hope that awaits them, is more real to them than what they can see. These folks have come to understand the grace of God 
and it shows in the visible fruit of their honoring God and in their loving each other. So we start with Epaphras. Epaphras is an example of the kind of minister Paul can trust, and he acts with faith and love. Now, but you don't have to be a vocational minister to imitate Epaphras. You can imitate his character and his faithfulness regardless of your gifts or your role in the church. See, Epaphras serves in the way he does because he's committed to the hope of the gospel which fuels his faithfulness and love. Look at verse 7. Just as you learned it, that is the grace of God, from Epaphras, our fellow uh, beloved servant, beloved fellow servant, sorry, reverse the word order there. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. I want to say a couple of things about uh, Epaphras. We can imitate, first of all, we can imitate his teaching. Notice, you learned it from Epaphras, means that he taught the truth. Secondly, Epaphras is faithful, serving Christ. He's a servant of Christ and of the Colossian church. He says, on your behalf. And thirdly, he was focused on their spiritual growth. Epaphras uh, brought this report to Paul in Rome about the Colossians' hope, faith, and love. And that's not how most people today would evaluate a church, would it? I mean, we tell others about the music, about the programs, about the building. But Epaphras' deep understanding of Paul's teaching made him focus on these very virtues at work in the churches of the Lycus Valley. This clearly shows not only that Epaphras had a love of solid teaching, but also that he had a love for believers in his homeland. And that brings me to the Colossian church as another example of the embodiment of hope, faith, and love. God has, through Epaphras, connected Paul to a group of people he's never met. But they share this confidence in, in Jesus Christ, and Paul's overjoyed to hear about their love for each other because it means that God has truly transformed their lives. You think we could be that sort of people too? be rejoicing about people that we've never met who uh, are, are growing in grace. Verse 6, uh, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Let's imitate the Colossians in their walk with God. I've got two things to, to point out for the Colossian church. Number one is they, I, they act on hope towards Jesus. They seek to know him more. How has your hope changed you? Watch the progression. They heard the message and they accepted it as true. God gave them understanding of the truth about God's character, his grace in providing Jesus as a sacrifice for sins, and the way to be right with God. And then they understood, naturally, by God's Spirit. Paul means that they have a deep understanding of God's grace, a personal experience of God's grace. Theirs is not a superficial or flippant attitude that will blow away in the first wind of false teaching. God's grace had really taken root in their hearts, and it is... Verse 6 again, increasing. 
you see that they remain faithful in the long run. So we take encouragement and rejoice in the gospel's fruitful effects in Colossae. The second thing I want to say about the Colossians is they act on hope towards other believers. They have demonstrated their love. The words grace of God in this passage drive home that they have a living and personal relationship with God. It's not put on. It's not legalistic. Their hope gives them the eternal perspective they need to sacrifice for other believers to encourage and build one another up. And we started off our passage in verse 3 with Paul's thanksgiving. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We should be thanking God for each other. We're thankful when we see God at work in each other's lives. We're thankful when we see that hope, faith, and love growing. And the hope that we have in Jesus Christ gives us that confidence that we need to sacrifice for each other. Our time, our presence, our listening ears. Sometimes that sacrifice is being forgiving and gracious to a fellow believer, even in the little things. Now, whatever it takes to build up a brother or sister so that they and we can see beyond the crisis of the moment and get a glimpse of how God is being honored, we should do it. This hope God gives us, it shows us his glory, is more important than anything we might lose or have to sacrifice. We trust God to provide the need. There's no doubt that Jesus will return. Just a question of when. Are you ready? See, that confidence leads us to trust in Christ and to love one another without fear of what we might lose in this life. Our hope is laid up for us in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ is all we need. Let's pray. Father, help us to remain faithful to the grace that you've shown us. Keep us mindful of the hope that awaits us, the hope of your presence. Cause our longing hope for Jesus' return to lead us in the present, to love one another truly in a way that honors you. May this hope cause us all to give thanks for the faith and love you have produced in us and in others. Show us how to encourage and commend that faith and love of believers around us. May this attitude deepen our appreciation of your faithfulness and love as we see it working in the faithfulness of your servants. And we ask you all of this to the praise and the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing our last song in response. We're going to sing Amazing Grace.